Hello and welcome to In Unison, the podcast about new choral music and the conductors, composers, and choristers who create it. We are your hosts. I am Zane Fiala, Artistic Director of the International Orange Chorale of San Francisco. And I'm Giacomo Di Gregoli, a tenor in IOCSF, the Golden Gate Men's Chorus, and the San Francisco Symphony Chorus. And this is... In Unison! Today we're chatting with Bay Area soprano and early music scholar Michelle Kennedy. And we thought, why not start off with some of her music? Here's an excerpt of Michelle singing Rejoice Greatly from Handel's Messiah. today on In Unison is Michelle Kennedy, and Michelle is a versatile soprano soloist specializing in both early classical music as well as new music. She's been featured in performances of just about every major work in the standard repertory, appearing on stage of many of the greatest venues in the country. Michelle is also a member of a couple of incredible ensembles. Lorelei Ensemble, a group that creates and champions bold artistic work that points towards a new normal for women in music and Kaleidoscope Vocal Ensemble, which focuses on both early music and contemporary music. In the past year, she has debuted with Ars Minerva, Les Delices, and Opera Lafayette in some trailblazing digital forums. And just a couple of days ago, Michelle was a part of a streaming program put on by the Gold Coast Chamber Players and the Alexander String Quartet called Dvorak's America, which explored the impact of spirituals and Native American music on Dvorak during his time in America. A graduate of Yale University and NYU, Michelle is committed to working toward greater equity and representation for BBI, which stands for Black, Brown, and Indigenous, LGBTQ, and female voices across the field. Michelle, thanks so much for joining us today. It is such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. 
Yay, Michelle, it's so good to chat with you. I uh, I have to say, we always start with the icebreakers, but um, because I've had the pleasure of knowing Michelle since I was, we were we children together at Yale many moons ago. I almost skipped this part, but there's no way we're skipping it because this one's going to be a fun one today. <laughs> so, Michelle, an icebreaker for you so that everyone else can get to know the wonderful human being I know. Uh, here's an icebreaker for you. The hours of sunlight, they're getting mercifully longer, the flowers are blooming, nature's healing, and summer with all of its delights is fast approaching. So Michelle, tell us, if you were a summer dessert, what would you be? This is a tricky question for someone with an, an avid sweet tooth, but I did, I, ch- I chose one, which is mango and sticky rice is my all-time favorite dessert. Uh, I've spent some time in uh, South Asia. My husband's family has a lot of roots there. And uh, I remember having my first dessert uh, in West Bengal, um, mango and sticky rice. And I was just a devotee from then on. And I find it to be just like the perfect foil to a hot summer day, just fresh ripe mango, and then the richness of the sticky rice. So Mm. that's my dessert of choice. Oh, but the mango's got to be just right, doesn't it? It's got to be that perfectly ripe. Yes, in those seven minutes when it's perfectly ripe. <laughs> <laughs> Not unlike an avocado. <laughs> well, speaking of, speaking of uh, relating it to time, um, if that piece of music were a dessert, if a piece of music were a dessert, what piece would you have this summer? Mm, this is such... A wonderful and semi-overwhelming question. I think the dessert that comes to mind is like chocolate mousse topped with wild summer berries because I love the richness and the full-bodied nature of the mousse with the flavors and all the colors and tanginess of the berries. In trying to think of a musical corollary to that, (laughs) it's challenging. I will say, um, having just done this project featuring the works of, of Dvorak alongside the works of Harry Burley, that a lot of Dvorak's chamber music reminds me of the combination of timbres <laughs> present in that dessert, right? This beautiful engagement of strings, particularly an, an emphasis on the viola, which was Dvorak's own instrument, and you know all the warm tones of that low soundscape intermingled with this beautiful writing for violin and for these sort of ethereal higher colors and the blending of those two together is just delectable i love this question (laughs) that was a great answer Let's start the conversation with a little bit of your Bay Area history. Um, For those who don't know, you actually grew up here in the Bay Area and have now returned to live in Oakland um, after a a long stint uh, in in New York and, of course, being bi-coastal, as as musicians often are. Um, And as a young lady, you sang with the San Francisco Girls Chorus. How did that choral music experience shape your early music career? Immensely. I would say I went from an extremely shy little girl state where my first instrument was the piano from age three. And I used to just love sitting there even before my feet would touch the ground and just getting lost in the world of the piano for hours. 
And the piano is the perfect instrument for an introvert because it just envelops you in your own world. And I found when I auditioned for the girls chorus and started singing in, in their level three at age eight, I was still so shy that I didn't even really look up at the conductor. This is very inward little girl. And I think that it was a lot of elements in the girls chorus that helped draw me out and come into my strength as a musician. The, the discipline, the rigor, the regularity. We would rehearse every Tuesday and Thursday and then in a concert week, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, sometimes the weekend as well. And for me, that started to feel like it was in my bones, those rehearsal hours. And I started to trust, I think, more and more that muscle memory and my capacity as a storyteller as a young woman, which I think was a really powerful vehicle coming into adolescence in particular. And I remember I used to sometimes feel like I was two different people one at school where I was brainy and, you know, had friends and had some good times, but was also really self-conscious and really shy, especially in middle school. And then the young woman I was in girls chorus where I was becoming a section leader and sometimes a soloist. And I felt kind of in my stride in a way that I couldn't really access at school. And uh, even though that felt a little fragmented for a while, I think that those two identities have become more integrated over time and that the discipline, the rigor, and also the spirit of collaboration in the girls' course, where you learn to calibrate and balance your voice alongside the voices of others has just been a totally invaluable life skill. And the last thing I'd say is that the repertoire exposure was just fantastic. You know, we did children's roles at San Francisco Opera. We worked with Chen Yi, I remember coming to speak with us about a phenomenal piece that she had written for Trouble Voices. We did Vivaldi, you know, Baroque settings from the Ospedali. We did music by David Conti, other living barrier composers, Kirk Meacham. I mean, it was just, the range was phenomenal. And I will just forever be grateful for that. What was it that first sort of spurred you on to become a member? I mean, here you are, like, probably perfectly content as an introverted child at the piano. And now all of a sudden you're at eight joining this choir. What was the impetus for that? <laughs> well, I think ages three, four, five, six, I was pretty diligent about practicing the piano. And then I think as I started to get older, I began to sing more and more when I was supposed to be playing the piano. So I think that my parents... <laughs> were sort of on to me and they had me audition for a couple different choirs and um, we tried out actually a few different ones before I joined the girls chorus and they thought that that seemed like the best fit for me so I think it was really it was parental instinct is what it was <laughs> that got me there here is an archival excerpt recording of the SF girls chorus singing Hildegard von Bingen's plain chant O Virtus Sapientiae, under the direction of Valerie Saint Agate.
And as part of your uh, return back to the Bay Area, you also recently returned to the Davies stage pre-pandemic to perform with the San Francisco Girls Chorus as a soloist. How did it feel to come back as a soloist as an adult? Amazing. Like a full circle revisitation of my own life. Um, Like I could bring the self-possession of my current artistry kind of back to my girlhood in this kind of healing way. And hopefully also be a model for the girls in terms of mentorship and um, all the stuff that we cultivate, you know, in physical artistry, body work, alignment, fitness, and more than anything, um, a sense that our voice is valuable, that what we have to say matters, that the composite, that the collective has a unique power, but that every voice contained within it is essential and vital. I think that that's the most powerful thing about choral singing in general, but uh, particularly for young women, I think it it has a transformative power, especially in adolescence. So it was really fun in the the program, which was uh, Christmas, Christmas time. We integrated a bunch of different styles from across the globe. And we also, we interwove the girls' testimonies. So they spoke kind of throughout the program. And that was just so fun and personal to celebrate all these different traditions. Uh, We did a whole bunch of Sephardic music and celebrated the cultural intersection of that repertoire, which I really, really adore. And I joined each level of within the the girls chorus school and the the professional level ensemble for just different types of repertoire. We did um, a beautiful Hanukkah setting. We did some uh, Cuban-American folk songs. We did some Sweet Honey in the Rock arrangements. It was really just this phenomenal range. And I think for me, especially coming up in Oakland as a black and biracial young woman and celebrating this kind of multicultural intersection with all 250 of the girls was just like a singularly personal and healing experience for me. It sounds like the the cross-section of, um, or the, the, the repertoire, the, the breadth of repertoire, has, is something that's been pretty consistent from when you were singing to coming back as a soloist. Um, what's different? I would say, and you'll laugh because performing at Davies is just about the most formal venue one can imagine, but I think the nature of formality and the approach to performance in the girls chorus has changed and evolved since I was in it. I think when I was in it, in part because in the mid to late 70s, founding a feministic organization in the Bay was a trailblazing thing to do. There was a sense that it was like a little bit muscled, you know, like any big risk, like we're going to make a statement, we're going to do this. And there was a little more kind of fire and I think frankly, uh, fear about being perfect on stage, performing to our best, getting all dressed up and buttoned up and go on stage, you know? So like finesse making, but not exactly like zen making. (laughs) No, it was like kind of a pressure cooker. And I just remember performance nerves were just sort of pro forma and I didn't really have tools with which to understand them. 
Um, I think now the girls chorus has integrated in a bunch of vocal pedagogy and body work and has cultivated this kind of whole person approach to singing, a really conservatory level expertise. And I think that as the organization has come of age, there's been along with it this kind of fully embodied practice, which I very much admire and for myself came to later as an undergrad and in graduate school. But I think it's totally invaluable for young women to start to have that psychosomatic understanding of their person. Um, so to see that element of the girls' chorus grow has been really wonderful. I think also that they're doing so many interdisciplinary collaborations now with Berkeley Ballet, with, you know, with dancers across musical forms. And I just see more physicality and more physical freedom than there was when I was coming up in the, in the girls' chorus. And I think with that brings particularly for young women and all the messages that we get from the world about how we ought to hold ourselves and usually how little space we should be taking up with our voices. I think that this is like the antidote. This is the celebration of the largeness of, of the full embodied way of standing in your strong female voice. And I just see that aspect of the girls' chorus getting stronger all the time. It's really great. It's great to witness. I think that dovetails into something that you and I have talked about um, uh, quite a bit uh, on our own, but that I find really fascinating, which is this notion of the divine feminine. And you sort of spoke a little bit about it and around it as you were as you were talking about the girls' chorus and and in your practice. Can you tell folks maybe what is meant a little bit about this idea of the divine feminine? Definitely, definitely. Um, I should say first that I think divine to me means sacred, spiritual, uh, matter, a matter of the spirit and the soul versus physical and material things. To me, the divine feminine means a fully embodied experience of being a woman in the world, uh, a fully celebrated and unapologetic voice. And also kind of as a counter to a lot of the prevailing hierarchies and power dynamics that we all witness and I think are waking up to on deeper levels, particularly in 2020 and 2021, I think of the divine feminine as a way of centering, nurturing, compassion, listening, collaboration, and um, kind of nourishment in a word centering nourishment in our sort of villages and the way that we live and to me that's just such a powerful way of being and a welcome contrast <laughs> to a lot of the messages that we get particularly from a capitalist system that has a lot of rigid hierarchies built in yeah, and I think the, the Western music tradition has a lot of that built in as well. I mean, those hierarchies, the who who holds the baton and who is the archivist and what is the the rep that will be performed. I mean, it's very interesting to see all of that breaking down. And I have to say that uh, a lot of your work, um, you mentioned, I think, her a little bit earlier, but in feminism and uh, relating to feminism, early music, and uh, your friend, 
uh, Hildegard von Bingen, who, or everyone's friend, I should say, because everyone's she's friend. rather brilliant. <laughs> um, and you are an academic expert and sought-after soloist and ensemble singer of early music, mixed in with a lot of contemporary pieces. So how does some of the work of early music composers, specifically folks like Hildegard of Bingen or uh, Isabella Leonarda, inform your work today? I think they impact my work profoundly. Uh, Hildegard's chant settings in particular were, I think the first time I remember as a girl encountering my sense of early music, especially chant, solo chant, with virtuosity and with um, a full freedom of expression. I, it kind of blew my mind that those things could coexist. And the more I've lived with Hildegard's chants over the years, the more I've enjoyed that aspect of it. This is sort of a, a set format and modality that's very um, recognizable in medieval music, but so much play, so much ornamentation, so much passion within that framework. And I love that. I love that. And I think particularly in the realm of early music, whether it's Renaissance music, whether we're talking about you know, the motets of William Byrd or Lassus or De Rore or Jacques de Vert or something, where, where there's a very set, um, I don't know, world of parameters when it comes to um, imitative material and, and formal structure. I, I love the works that explore a full freedom of expression within those forms. So I think Hildegard as a pillar of my repertoire has been really liberating in that way. And I especially love, I'll give you an example of this, performing Hildegard alongside contemporary works. So my female trio, Trio Eos, uh, which is comprised of myself and Jessica Beebe and Marin Brem, soprano, soprano, mezzo. We performed seemingly 500 years ago, but in January, 2019 with uh, the Folger Consort um, in Washington National Cathedral in DC, which is a beautiful space for any kind of music, really. We performed um, a run that was built on Hildegard's chants in this really fun way. So we would sing them, sometimes solo verses, sometimes all three of us together. And then the band, the medieval band, would kind of riff around it and with this sort of improvised cloud of sound around Hildegard's chants, super beautiful. And then we interspersed these three contemporary works written by female composers. Kate Soper was one of them, um, Shulamit Ran was one, and Susan Bhatti, who wrote this super cool like soundscape uh, uh, set to birdsong, the world of birdsong, in which we both sang and we played these like elaborate instruments. That was a challenge, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, but it was, it's so, I love that dialogue between contemporary music and Hildegard's music because there's something that feels so timeless about her settings and kind of fluid. And I feel like it's just a great compliment to new music. Here's a little bit of Michelle singing with Trio Eos, performing Rejuissons Nous by Cipriano de Rohr live at Bartram's Garden in 2019. Rejoice, 
Well, it's also mind-blowing to think of um, this, you know, Hildegard, this abbess. And I think that the juxtaposition is very interesting. I want to uh, lead this into a little bit of some of the work that you do with the Lorelei Ensemble. And maybe first you can just tell us a little bit about um, the Lorelei Ensemble. Sure. Lorelei Ensemble is a Boston-based all-female ensemble uh, led by Beth Willard. And there are many, many things that I admire about Lorelei, one of which is that their repertoire, it's contemporary, mainly repertoire by living composers, really celebrates the full breadth of the female voice and sonority. So they, they sing sometimes a very contained sounds on the, on the pure tone side, everything from that to like full virtuosic singing, full lyric singing. And it feels to me like part of their mission to celebrate that full spectrum of color. So to me, it definitely feels like an expression of the divine feminine as we've defined it here, you know, this sense of versatility and abundance, which Hildegard herself, of course, embodies. And the um, bittersweet thing is that my intended debut with Lorelei hasn't yet happened because it was supposed to be in 2020, that fateful year. And um, the good news, though, is that in the meantime, I've done a couple digital premieres with them, which has been really fun. And also the tour that we were going to do then, I think, is going to happen next year. It's a fantastic piece by Julia Wolfe. And um, it's called Her Story and is a celebration of the 100-year anniversary of women's right to vote. And it, it, as I've noticed with all of Julia Wolfe's work, it's just this phenomenal and phenomenally researched tapestry of history, testimony, uh, voices from the past, voices from the present, all woven together. And also a celebration of the evolution of the women's right to vote. You know, so we think of the 19th Amendment as being the pinnacle of that. But also there were many, many classes of women, including women of color, who couldn't vote until much later in the 20th century. And I just love about Julia's work how she, she champions the marginalized in her work. She writes about working folks. She has this wonderful um, chamber setting celebrating the life and legacy of John Henry uh, and like that legend of the black steel worker and what, it's, what that world is like. And she's just become a champion of, of women's rights and workers' rights. And uh, that's what I think our story is a culmination of women's right to vote, but also intersectionality of uh, full citizenship and what it means to leave people out of that. Like essentially, to me, it feels like a celebration of a citizenry that isn't complete until everybody's voice is at the table. So next year, I think we will be able to tour that piece. We'll perform with a bunch of different symphony orchestras across the country and uh, hopefully bring that tour de force to life. So, you know, we've, we've chatted a bit now about early composers who we might classify as early feminists. And we are also at a time when looking back on 2020 and then into the future, we're clearly at a, at a reckoning and hopefully an inflection point with regard to art and social change, which begs the following question in that, do you feel a sense of responsibility as an artist today as it pertains to social justice and shaping our culture? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I used to think of myself when I was an undergrad around the time that I met Giacomo when I was studying at Yale. I think I used to think of myself as kind of two people. There was the part of me, the political scientist, the citizen, the human rights advocate, and then there was the musician. And when I was at Yale, I was a double major in music and political science. And I think I still felt pretty siloed about those two worlds. And I thought of them as like two contrasting parts of myself. But the more that I've come of age and understood the real powers, power of artistry and my personal mission as an artist, the more I realize that they're one and the same, that they always have been and that they always should be. And I want to center that integration in all of my work. So I'll give you an example. The, the Kaleidoscope Vocal Ensemble is an octet comprised of early music experts in the field and um, principally musicians of color. And our, our mission has a, a couple of different, different components. It's aiming to present artistic excellence and diversity as one and the same overlapping terrain that ought to be celebrated uh, all at once. Uh, it's also very much about uh, bridging, bridging the centuries between early music and contemporary. As you'll see in our programming, we often pair period programming with, with new works. And it's also very much about mentorship and a question that I think pretty much every musician in the group has asked ourselves, whether subconsciously or no, over the course of our career, which is why aren't there more artists of color in early music or in contemporary music? Where can I find an ensemble full of people who look like me? And I think after we all looked around, particularly the founders of Kaleidoscope, Ariana Bella and Sherry Pentaki, they said, well, you know, we don't really see that group. So let's create it. <laughs> and that's what they did. Here is the Kaleidoscope Ensemble singing Salomone Rossi's Cor Mio. <laughs>
I'm so proud of Kaleidoscope and our mission and how we've remained vital under the pandemic and what we'll be capable of on the other side. Uh, that's one example. One other example is um, the Open Gates Project, which is a new initiative in New York City. It's a, a branch of Gotham early music scene um, in which I was asked to be a co-curator, which is fun, totally new hat for me, along with my colleague, Joe Damon Chappelle. And this is an early music series that centers the voices of artists of color. So it will feature both players and singers of color from all over the world, really, and celebrate what that representation means and the wider range of colors we might celebrate on the stage in a lot of different ways. I love that. I want to follow on a little bit on the, the notion of the artist as an agent of social change. Um, we spoke a little bit about 2020, that fateful year, and kind of rolling into 21, of course. Um, and as the doors of large symphony halls and even churches were shuttered due to COVID, and as we, we consider social norms vis-a-vis -vis the social justice movements of 2020 and beyond, we can safely say that this has clearly been a time of upheaval for a number of musical institutions. How would you describe the impact of 2020 on our musical institutions, small and large? Hmm. <laughs> it's uh, made a lot of ripples on the pond. <laughs> <laughs> One or two, at least. Yeah. One or two. One thing I find to be kind of fascinating about what I think is Arundhati Roy, wonderful artist and public speaker, I think she put it as um, a portal. She's, she likened the pandemic to a portal through which only the nimble would, would pass. Which is to say, if we don't shed the weight that we were carrying before, having learned what we've learned, then maybe we won't make it through the portal. And I do think that there's been this kind of powerful overturning of the hierarchy in the classical music world in this year of reckoning, in which the groups I've seen who have become most agile and pivoted through the portal most easily are the guerrilla opera companies, the pickup choirs, chamber ensembles who went through that moment of paralysis and shock that we all felt last March and April, and then took a look around and thought, well, what is possible in this landscape? How do I rise to this moment? And I mean that in terms of technology, but I mean that in terms of the panoramic. What is this moment teaching me? What is the uprising, this like phenomenal, unprecedented Black Lives Matter movement ricocheting everywhere across the globe? What does this mean for me in my field? What does this mean, the uprisings in the Asian American community? How can I heed that call and reflect it in my work? And I do think that it's been a, a very challenging moment for larger institutions, big opera companies, big symphonies, simply because they're large and they move slowly and there's bureaucracy. And I have found this to be actually a, a kind of singularly liberating moment for small ensembles and for individual artists. Because even at this moment of widespread public suffering when we're all missing and mourning so much, we also have so much creative agency and we have so much to respond to. And we are not beholden to large institutions because they are figuring out how to survive. 
So I've asked myself so many times, like, what does this mean for me as an artist? How can I kind of grab the reins and sculpt my career into a career that really is of this moment? What, what are some examples of um, some opportunities you've taken to sort of see that um, bridging between the existing musical canon and the wider array of voices that need a seat at the table? Because it sounds like that's one of the things you're also seeing as well is... Um, just more of these opportunities for individual artists and, and smaller ensembles to say, we're going to do the things that maybe haven't been getting as much attention um, or try exper- experiment and try new things and new forms while there's a massive audience that's all sitting at home and individual artists who can't necessarily work together in these sort of larger ensembles. So what's what's some examples of, of, of work that you've done over this course of time that, that might exemplify that? Oh, that's such a fun question. I think that the first digital collaboration I did that felt like it bridged those two worlds was with San Francisco Choral Society, uh, which I know and love and which, you know, is, is very beloved in the Bay Area. I had done a Christmas oratorio with them in the before times, but in the just before times. So <laughs> like about three months before our world turned upside down. And just love, love, love that community. And uh, Bob Geary and Brian Baker have done such a phenomenal job of figuring out, you know, what's possible under pandemic conditions. What what can we still be doing? So one of the answers to that was let's put on a recital, which I think also was a, a fundraiser for the Choral Society. This was in October of 2020. And one of the wonderful things about it is that being asked to sing in that recital, they gave me total creative license and they said, what would you like to sing? In you know, which is actually not a question that I've been asked all that much in my career <laughs> before this time. Like how, how would you like to curate this? You know, it's, it's empowering. I decided that I wanted to pair an example from, you know, the known canon with a lesser known selection. So I chose Handel's I Know That My Redeemer Liveth, which is one of my very, very favorite arias in the entire repertoire, with Florence Price's little known setting, a song called Sunset, which is very much about that bright spot on the horizon that beckons when we think about the life beyond, when we are missing our loved ones. And I think both of those pieces to me are like a channel to my ancestors and also make me feel in touch with them and in this like great continuum that we feel across generations and I thought how powerful and cool would it be to bring Handel and Florence Price into dialogue in this recital. Here is Michelle performing Florence Price's Sunset with Brian Baker on piano hosted by the San Francisco Choral Society. Oh, 
So that's one example. Another example is much more recent with uh, Le Delice, the Cleveland-based awesome Baroque ensemble. I had been, I met Deborah Nagy at American Box Soloist Academy a few years ago, another beloved San Francisco institution. And uh, she just, what a trailblazer. She took that question, what's possible under these conditions to a whole new level. She's put on this phenomenal series called Salon Era or Salon Era, I think is how she pronounces it. And we sort of sculpted the concepts for a couple different digital salons, two of them this spring. The first one was Women in Music, uh, featured a bunch of Baroque female composers. And the second one, the more recent, was the Orpheus myth. And that's the one that I am reminded of by your question, because we thought, I thought, the Orpheus myth is timeless. You know, why has it been set for thousands of years? <laughs> what is it about it? Um, and to me, the answer is it's, it's like our oldest frame story about the transformative power of music. But I thought if we were to explore that in a digital salon, what could that look like? And in the end, with many voices at the table, myself, wonderful tenor, Jason McStutes, and also the phenomenal scholar, Susan McClary, we celebrated this intersection of the Orpheus myth over the ages from Monteverdi, Charpentier, Bamot, to Luis Bonfa from the 1959 Brazilian set movie of Black Orpheus. And the backdrop of Brazilian Carnival in Rio with that timeless love story. And just, you know, a little microcosmic exploration of the myth across cultures and eras. And I thought this is just such a great way to embrace what's possible under the pandemic conditions and a way to forge dialogue between known masterpieces and the voices that we all need to hear so much more from. Super fun, super exciting. I loved it. I had never heard anything like it. And I'm excited to, to expose our audience to that too, because I think that the, that Mania de Carnaval is just so stunning. I mean, um, it, and, and I had never sort of thought to hear a piece with that. Is it a bossa nova beat? What is the beat that's underneath yeah, it? Yeah, it's bossa yeah. nova with Baroque instruments. Yeah, with Baroque I mean, who would have thought? I mean, it's, you know, like, look, if you'd put that on the, like, the, the symphony thing or, you know, it was a whole program of it, somebody might be like, you know, like, they, but the <laughs> fact that, like, you have this direct access to an audience and anyone's curiosity can pick it up and it can, and it could spread around the world um, in this really, just feels like it's very specific and unique to now. And I thought it was spec- I think it's a really great piece. and I'm excited to, to introduce people to it. Let's listen to some of Michelle singing Maya de Carnaval by Luis Bonfa, arranged by Deborah Nagy.
And I'm, I'm equally excited to uh, maybe have you share a little bit about um, the Dvorak's America and the Gold Coast, Gold Coast Chamber Players program that just went up a, a few days ago um, because you also had some solo pieces in there that were just mind-blowing. I mean, the juxtaposition of old and new and the Dvorak versus the Burley, I mean, stunning. Can you tell us a little bit about that program? Sure, sure. This is another example of a project that has been many moons in the making and actually went from a version that we weren't sure we could make happen pre-pandemic because the Gold Coast Chamber players, the Alexander String Quartet and myself, and also Mary Youngblood, the wonderful Native American flautist in the program, um, we just weren't all available in the same week, <laughs> in the before times. But then, about eight months later, after the world changed enormously, I got back in touch with, with Pam Freud Striplin, the Gold Coast founder and wonderful violist, and she said, you know, we, we would really like to pursue this Forjac Burley conversation, and I wonder what you think. And I was so happy that we were back in touch because, you know, sometimes you just meet a kindred spirit and you just know you want that person to be in your life. That's how I felt about Pam. And everything about how this project has evolved has just deepened that feeling, not only toward her, but also toward all the players in the Alexander Quartet who are just the menchiest <laughs> and, and such beautiful musicians. So one other thing that still kind of blows my mind is that the timing of this project was serendipitous, not only because given the way we're all living, we could bring this combination of musicians together, but also because even two, three months ago, pre-vaccination, we wouldn't have been able to record it the way that we did without masks in the same space with, you know, strict hygiene protocol, but still in a way that we could make in-person chamber music. And for me, that was the first time in over a year that I had done so. So I had to come really early so I could just be ready to cry for the first half an hour and then regroup so I could sing later. But what I also love about this is it has that dialogue that we're talking about, but I think there's also, I should say, a little bit of a danger in being too hasty in trying to diversify our programming. I think it's easy to do these sort of knee-jerk responses in this moment and to try to sort of rush that process, right? Like we're, it's not gonna be overnight that we go from Beethoven and Haydn reading, reading on the stage to centering. Florence Price and Harry Burley, right? This is like, we need to share the stage, figure out what that conversation is like and approach it thoughtfully or else, in my way of thinking, we, we do the process an injustice. So what I love about this project is it was just so thoughtfully curated from the beginning. And Pam is the mastermind behind it. But she also, she invited me to the table as a co-programmer which I was totally honored by, but we, we came to the design of the program together. And we thought, how can we center the friendship between Dvorak and Burley, which is so personal and vivid and something we can all relate to in the program. And ultimately we decided, let's do it interstitially. So we'll break up the movements of the quartet and quintet, Dvorak's, interspersed 
spiritual settings of Burley that are kind of thematically related. So you can actually hear musical tropes echoed between them, uh, which is so cool because that's what their friendship born out, right? It's just like this musical dialogue and respect. And what I love about that, and also Mary Youngblood's um, the integration of Native American folk tunes and improvisation, particularly in American Grace, that like most beloved, um, Amazing Grace rather, that most beloved American melody, that we could bring all those voices to the table in this tapestry of American music that is multicultural by definition. I just, I thought that that was such a powerful vehicle and kind of the opposite of that knee jerk, like, let's just, let's just plug in whatever we can do <laughs> to diversify our programming. Not, not, not all cursory, you know, considered, curated, personal. And I think that that's part of the lasting power of it. At least I hope so. I hope so too. You, uh, I, you've exposed me through that program just through so many things. I mean, I, did, I wasn't even aware of the relationship between Dvorak and Burley and, um, and I just have so many new favorites. I mean, mostly your performances of old favorites are my <laughs> new favorites. Um, but did you have any particular favorites from that program? Oh my goodness, hard. Um, Swing Low Sweet Chariot is a very beloved melody in my family. Uh, particularly in the Kennedy family, my dad's family. Um, the, my grandmother, Willa Mae McKinney, loved spirituals, loved hymns, and uh, it was one of just several just beautiful, beautiful, timeless melodies that, you know, we heard as lullabies when we were kids. Just gorgeous. And in my family, I think those melodies were so beloved. My Lord, what a morning and swing low in particular. Michelle, can you tell us a little bit more about these spiritual arrangements by Burley? They were spirituals, but they were set with string quartet and voice. Is that right? Yes, yes, that's a great question. So Harry Burley originally arranged these four spirituals. We did Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, My Lord, What a Morning, By and By. Uh, actually, those are the three. Those are the three Burley, and then Going Home was a separate, a standalone. Uh, so the three Burley were originally arranged for voice and piano. That's this, if you if you get the Harry Burley's volume of art songs and spirituals, which everyone should get. It's amazing. Uh, that's that's the voicing. So um, Zach, the uh, first violinist in the Alexander String Quartet, rearranged Burley's arrangements for strings, and beautifully so. So that kind of sonority was a little bit novel for these settings. And what I would say that they have in common is uh, strophic form, um, linguistically and musically. And one of many things that I admire and love about Harry Burley's arrangements is that he'll take a relatively straight ahead, um, often like for just very pleasant sounding and recognizable harmonic language. So a lot of the spirituals are in F major or A flat major. And he'll start there and kind of paint the beginning of the first strophe there. And then he just will permutate the harmonic language so inventively. And it goes into all these different realms with like blues notes and seventh and ninth and eleventh chords. And then these like ethereal upper harmonies that paint 
the world beyond our sense of, of heaven or the horizon, however we might define that, our sense of, of hope and, and brightness um, alongside the great depths of these warm colors that in this arrangement were so beautifully realized by the strings, especially the low strings, doubled up viola in the quintet uh, because that was Dvorak's instrument of choice, and also that low sonority alongside the bass instrument complement Harry Burley's arrangements so beautifully. Let's check out what Michelle is talking about. Here's the string and voice arrangement of By and By by H.T. Burley. circle back a bit and talk some more about the impact of 2020 on our musical institutions, especially with regard to COVID and social change. When we consider the prevailing aesthetic within the realm of both early and contemporary chamber music and how it's been defined to date, what has changed in light of the last year? Well, I think a couple of things. There's a change that's accelerated in the last year that I think has been in the making for a number of years. And that is that, especially in the choral music world, particularly in early and contemporary music, I think the prevailing aesthetic has a roots in the English boy choir tradition, particularly for treble voices, for high voices. And while there's much to be gleaned from that, a beloved evensong tradition, for example, King's College choir tradition, there's just so much of that aesthetic that is designed for a boy choir. It's designed for a prepubescent male sound. And uh, I think we all know that, for the most part, a grown woman's vocal health and um, full-bodied singing is a very different sound world from that of, say, an 11-year-old boy. And I think that this question is coming under the microscope 
for good reason. It tends to privilege certain voices over others, based on youth, certainly, based often on race, I think, by sort of biological leanings in terms of like which, which groups of people might be most likely to produce that sound. Um, and, and I think also based on weight. I think that that high voice aesthetic is not something that larger women make. I think it's not an aesthetic that most women of color can meet. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a problematic aesthetic for the vast majority of women. And I see more and more early in contemporary music ensembles and choral ensembles celebrating the full range of vocal sonorities. This, this is true of men, but I, I'm just going to highlight high female voices since that's the focus of our discussion today. And I think the group that is most profoundly impacted by this evolving discussion. And I think particularly as an early music specialist, as a Baroque specialist, I think about this in my return to the field. You know, what does this mean for the world of oratorio? What does this mean for the world of contemporary music? Can we forge some new pathways here? And certainly in um, Kaleidoscope, for example, is celebrating this. Also my female trio, Eos, celebrates this. And Lorelei Ensemble, the full array of colors in the female voice. So can we produce this very lean, kind of light breath pressure produced sound? Sure, but that's just one, one color among many. And how do we approach the repertoire and the concert stage in a way that celebrates all of the colors and that is built on a foundation of vocal freedom and openness for women uh, through our coming of age? And for me, this is part of my central calling as a mentor, as a leader of master classes with the girls chorus, but also more generally. I think it's just so important because we, we work for years on physical alignment, connection to our breath, psychosomatic health. And what does it mean if then we have to come to the stage and use a fraction of our voice? It, that takes us backward all the time. And it takes us into this sort of, I like to believe obsolete place of sort of misogynistic norms and uh, this shrinking small apologetic place that women have been asked to occupy historically. So how do we move from that more toward the norms of the divine feminine, the norms of abundance, a fully embodied practice? Well, these are the questions that we have to answer. And I think that the groups that really consider it and take it to heart in their programming are the groups that will make it through the portal. I like to believe that. So I have a question about the female voice. You know, I, I went, you know, I studied uh, music in school. I have a master's in choral conducting. And part of my program was I had to take a vocal pedagogy class. Um, and I was surrounded by operatic female singers. Um, and <clears throat> yet in my personal life, the, the women that I've been involved with have, have not been trained musicians for the most part. There, I, I did a couple of opera, opera singers, but a couple of my relationships were with, with women who are, are musical, they love music, they like to sing. And my, my wife now is definitely fits into this category. Um, but when she sings, she sings in a register that's more akin to like a tenor register, right? Because that's just where she feels comfortable singing. She doesn't like to sing higher in her voice, right? 
And I, as a, as a, as a student of music and a person surrounded by vocal students, I was always given the impression by them that, well, that just is because they haven't trained their voices to learn to release an upper register that is where they should be singing. And Giacomo and I've talked about this a lot, like this idea that women's voices are supposed to be high. And I wondered, asking you as a vocal pedagogue, as a, as a trained soprano voice, what are your thoughts on that? Is it, is it true that you, if you're a woman and you sing low, that you're not trained, or is it really a matter of physical, you know, physiology? It's something that I'm really curious about because now I have a, a trained, you know, soprano soloist in front of me that I can ask this question of because it's something that we're talking about a lot right now, Giacomo and I in particular. Yes, and for good reason. That's exactly what I was going to talk about, was to continue that conversation, Michelle, that we were having the other day about this ensemble idea. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. I love it. Well, the short answer to your question about women's low voices um, is, is no. <laughs> Absolutely. If a woman doesn't have a high-reaching voice, uh, she can still be a very fine and professional caliber singer, of course. Um, this question fascinates me on a lot of levels. Um, in terms of my sense of fully embodied singing, I tend to focus on the full column, the free and open column uh, throughout the body, right? From rootedness in the feet all the way through the crown of the head. And there are so many practices designed to complement our alignment and our freedom of movement within that column, right? Certainly Alexander Technique and Feldenkrais, but yoga, like all this um, spinal alignment work that we do to keep our column free and well aligned and efficient. And then in vocal pedagogy, we work a lot on the open throat and on optimal music, uh, positions of the jaw, tongue, you know, and embouchure, like this sort of how do we work on the column and its optimal freedom and resonance here, right, um, in our upper body, and then how do we anchor it in the low body? And in a way, your question reminds me that I, I don't think that full column is complete without each of those elements. This is one of many paradoxes in singing and why it's not really for the faint, right? It's really, fine balancing act of a lot of different muscular groups and to say nothing of our psycho-emotional state in any given day, right? But this combination of going deep in the body for the breath, remaining grounded with the lift and the upper partials and this kind of sense of, you know, whether you would think of it as overtones or any number of things, freedom, uh, reverberation sparkle in the voice and in the vocal timbre it has to be mixed with that full body connection and I think that no matter your timbre female tenor coloratura soprano you're going to need that anchor to make those notes happen with optimal freedom and with the kind of chiaroscuro that we aim for certainly in bel canto singing that's like it has both the anchor and the lift and it's a constant recalibration between those two factors. So I think that any skilled vocalist, and this could be true of skilled amateurs as it is of, you know, people who have been performing for decades on professional stages, checking in again with that 
that column, the full open column of the body and of the spine up and down the entire body with freedom of breath that lets the sound come out as um, fluidly as possible. That's the constant work of this and uh, anybody can master it, anybody of any voice part. And the last thing I'll say is that I do think that your question has some echoes, like the preconceptions about how the female voice should be a certain way, and especially the female voice should be high, I think has a lot of shadings of misogyny written in. And it's like, well, why can't my voice have both? Silvery sparkle and earth tones. Why, why does my voice have to sound a certain way? What does it say about you that you might expect my voice to sound a certain way? What do you need when you are attached to that expectation? What does it mean for me to reassert my agency over the full range of colors in my voice? To me, this is just, it's been a huge part of my coming of age as an artist, as a woman. Um, and I'm just excited to see where that process grows. Michelle, looking forward into what's, what's coming next for you, um, what are some projects that you're excited about um, seeing come to life both in the now times and hopefully in the after times are you working on anything yet that you're um that you're excited about that you can tell folks about yes well i'll tell you actually that the dvorak burley program will be performed live and in person <gasps> next spring <laughs> i think full company is pretty overjoyed to bring that program to a live audience uh, I'm also working on something I can tell you a little bit about, <laughs> not everything about, but I'm very excited about it. Um, I'm intrigued. <laughs> it is um, a contemporary and actually graphic artist's uh, interpretation of an operatic classic by Mozart. Um, the cast will be actually entirely singers of color. It's certainly a celebration of that. And um, it will also be illustrated and animated. <laughs> okay. Well, and and meant, to be delivered, meant to be delivered digitally? Yes. Yes. Uh, it's going to have, I think, actually a long incubation mm. because uh, we're recording the music presently. And then it... Um, it goes to the graphic artist team and has like the whole progression of life after that. So yes, I think it'll be in digital form and very um, family friendly, They're like made for multiple, multiple generations. So Michelle, why don't you tell us and our audience uh, where we can find you online? Where, where can people tune in to, uh, to you, to Michelle Kennedy? Oh, thank you. Well, through my website, it's probably the easiest way. It's michelle-kennedy.com. And I also have a YouTube channel that I'm trying to build up. And uh, it's got a lot of the repertoire we've talked about today. Handel arias, Florence Price arias, all kinds of fun stuff. And um, I also, I'm, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. I'm happy to send you those handles if, if people want to hang out. I would just welcome the chance to talk with anybody about this work and people's input so 
fantastic yeah yeah we'll definitely put uh put all the links in our show notes to not only to you personally and to your youtube channel but we'll put in links to all the ensembles that you're involved with um and anything else that we want to point our listeners towards Giacomo, you got anything else for us Nothing except a huge uh, thanks and debt of gratitude to Michelle for joining us today and for sharing the gifts of your artistry and for just how incredible you are. You're wonderful. I, I can't thank you enough. Yeah, absolutely. Thunderous applause. Thunderous applause. We'll insert, we'll insert thunderous applause right here. <laughs> it's been so fun. It's been a total honor and delight for me. So thank you both so much. Yeah, thank you. Let's end today's episode with some hope for a bright new future. Here is Michelle singing with the Gold Coast Chamber Ensemble, performing H.T. Burley's arrangement of My Lord, What a Morning. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the In Unison Podcast. Be sure to check out episode extras and subscribe at inunisonpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social media at inunisonpod. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think. 
Music stand lights distributed and collected by Chorus Dolores, who has definitely considered being in professional show choirs at many points in their life, but doesn't really need that kind of success. In Unison is produced and recorded by Mission Orange Studios. Our theme music is Mr. Puffy, written by Avi Bortnik, arranged by Paul Kim, and performed by the Danish vocal jazz ensemble Dynamic on their debut album, This Is Dynamic. Special thanks to Paul Kim for permission. Be sure to check them out at www.dynamicjazz.dk.